morning once again. Uh, we are going back to Deuteronomy. We uh, took a brief uh, hiatus last week as we looked at the Gospel of John, but uh, we're diving back in. So uh, with that, just as a reminder, we're in the sixth commandment, do not murder, and this will be the last sermon in on the commandment, do not murder. Um, and we'll be examining just the first nine verses of Deuteronomy 21. Uh, with that, let's turn to our text. Deuteronomy 29, 20, did I say 29? 21 verses 1 to 9. Uh, this can be found in your bulletins or uh, in your Bibles if you have them. Hear God's word. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities, and the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has not pulled in a yoke, uh, and the elders of the city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Pray. Heavenly Father, we had just asked that you would be gracious, open our eyes to see clearly. Um, Uh, what you have in your word, particularly you would expose our sin and that you would show us the glories of Christ in the gospel. Uh, We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So there was a show back, I I think it ran for most of the 90s, maybe some of the 80s, um, and I'm guessing many of you saw it. Uh, It was called uh, Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know if you remember. I just remember the music. It was a pretty creepy show, actually. I didn't really like it. The host would discuss some mystery, uh, usually involved a crime like a murder, um, and then at the end, the, the, the host would solicit the people, the viewers, to say, if you have any information, please come forward. You guys remember the show? I, yeah. um, I, didn't, I was not a big fan of it. I found it somewhat disturbing. Um, and, you know, the music was a little creepy. Um, his voice, I don't know what it was, but it just felt creepy. But the real issue I had with it, um, at least for me, uh, was, was the fact that real people had suffered and there was no justice, no recompense, no answer to the question. I found that for, for me, that was just too much to bear. It was, it was a difficult thing. Whoever had committed the crime was still free. I realize it wasn't always murder and there were other things, but those are the ones that stuck out. In the U.S. last year, roughly 40% of homicides went unsolved. That's, that's, that's amazing uh, in a very terrible way. 
And if you, um, if you take into account and sort of separate that number out a little bit, those numbers are much higher in major urban cities um, and particularly higher um, if you adjust for race. Uh, so within minority communities, the rate of unsolved mur murders goes way up. It's tragic. Absolutely tragic. We live in this late Western, advanced, modern, enlightened society, quote-unquote. And, uh, and this is reality. But I wonder, I wonder if we aren't actually all that shocked as I rattle off those numbers and talk about the sort of, the sort of structural issues within our society and that. Uh, I wonder if we aren't shocked by it. Ironically, I think it's easy for us to read passages in Deuteronomy, as we've done over the course of weeks and months, to read passages and think, man, uh, I think the laws are strange. It's a, such an odd thing, and all this ritual sacrifice, and they don't seem quite so enlightened as we 21st century Western modern folk do. There's sort of an irony in that. The way we come at this and we think, oh, this is so weird. And yet when we come to this text, we realize how much God cares for life more than we do. How serious it is that life is taken. Even if a murder is unsolved and may be unsolvable, the guilt of that murder still has to be dealt with. Notice that? That's what this text is about. It's like, what happens in the case of an unsolved murder? Well, you still have to deal with the guilt of the sin that has happened. The guilt of the innocent blood. Something has to be dealt with. God cares so much for this that he calls to account even those who have done nothing wrong in and of themselves individually. There's a corporate effect of the sin. The blood guilt of the innocent individual cries out against the people as a whole. Imagine if we as enlightened Americans cared as much for lives as God does. This morning I want us to dwell on the weightiness of life in the eyes of God and the nature of murder and the guilt that it brings and I want us to ask these questions. First, what is blood guilt? Secondly, who is guilty of it? And then finally, how can it be atoned for? How can it be dealt with? Um, and of course, the hope is in the answer to that last question, right? <laughs> how can it be dealt with? How can it be atoned for? And so the answer, and this is the main hope that we have, is that who can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's, that's where we're headed. But to get there, let's start with these other questions. What is blood guilt? Let's firstly talk about the weightiness of human life. In one sense, I think we get the, fa get the fact that human life is sacred. I, I actually, as humanity as a whole gets this to a, a, in a sense. Our impulse as humans is to rescue people in distress, Right? We see somebody and we, we feel for them and we want to rescue them if we can. Um, we want to punish those who hurt or take the life of another. I think generally speaking, that's true. In the, in the, 
history of the world, I doubt that there is a nation or civilization that doesn't have on their law books some laws regarding this issue of murder. I, I, I doubt that there is uh, a law out there. Yet, in another sense, I do think we are more flippant about human life than we realize. George Orwell wrote in Animal Farm, All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Doesn't that say it all? If we're honest with ourselves, this is often how we treat people. But God is not like us, and his laws and ways are righteous. The text deals with the question of an unsolved murder. And you might expect that the law might go something like this. If you were to have a law, of un, uh, if you were to make up your own idea of what a law of unsolved murder would be like, you might write something to the effect of, if there is an unsolved murder in your midst, create a task force of elders and Levites to investigate. And if no one is found to have committed the murder, pray that God might reveal the truth and bring it to light. And until then, there's really nothing to be done. That's a little bit of conjecture, maybe how we might think about it. But this is not the case. Instead, God calls all the surrounding towns and elders, towns, elders, and officials to come together. The first thing they do is they measure distance. How many miles to your town? How many miles to your town? Okay, you're the closest town to the spot of the murder. Therefore, we need all your elders to come out, and you must bring with you a heifer, a cow, that has never held a yoke or of any sort, has never done any work, in that sense is kind of pure or unblemished, and you have to bring that with you, and we have to find a valley here somewhere that has a, a, a stream, and it can't be a wadi, you know, it can't be a, a stream that just comes when the rains come, but it has to be an ever-flowing present stream, like a spring-fed stream, and in this valley with this spring-fed stream, you can't have it all worked and tilled land that's kind of been abused and used, it has to be pristine. No farms, no work done, and we're going to go down to this, this, this stream, and we're going to take this heifer, and we're going to break its neck. This is strange, maybe, a little bit. But there, the heifer's neck was to be broken in that pristine environment. In other words, here you have a picture of blessing and of of beauty and of unblemishedness and, and everything, and you're going to ruin it. You're going to take that spot that is, that is a picture of the promised land, the beauty of the land, and you're going to ruin it. You're going to break the neck of that heifer right there. It's, a, it's a, sort of a, a, a picture that's being painted. Then all the elders and officials of that town have to take water, presumably from that flowing stream, and wash their hands over the heifer, declaring that they are innocent of the blood of that victim. And during this, the Levites are offering prayers up to God, pleading with God that he would make atonement for the murder, lest the guilt of innocent blood be in their midst. Assumingly, the person doing the washing is also making a similar prayer. And by doing all of this, this huge ritual that requires seeking out this place and bringing this cow and finding this location and having all the people there, and by doing all of this, then they purge the guilt. From the midst. In other words, 
murder is no small thing. The shedding of innocent blood is no small thing. It isn't just an issue between the victim and the victim's family and the, and the perpetrator. But it involves the whole town, whole community. The guilt does not belong just to the one who committed the murder. Did you catch that? Yes, he is the perpetrator and the one whose life is forfeit. If they were to find him, his life would be forfeit. But, and, and so in that sense, the broken neck of the heifer points to the perpetrator. This is what is required. The life of this cow represents the needed taking of the life of that, that, that perpetrator. But the guilt doesn't just belong there. It extends, if you will, to the whole community. Now, I, I understand there's a distinction, right? We have to be careful here. There's a distinction that needs to be made. God doesn't require the lives of the town officials or the people. They didn't actually commit the crime. But they're standing in the promised land. Their, their place in God's blessing is tied to the presence of evil and wickedness in their midst. If they allow evil and wickedness to kind of run rampant and to not be dealt with at all, it, their standing, their place in God's promised land is put up into question. And we know this because by the end of the time of the kings, they are being ushered out of the land for all sorts of evil that went on in their midst. No Israelite had the right to say, well, I didn't commit idolatry, or I didn't commit murder, or I didn't commit adultery. They were corporately responsible in some sense. The guilt extended beyond. Well, I want to come, I'm going to come back to this as we look at the second question. So I just want to highlight the sort of weightiness um, of the sin here. I just want to show how significant human life was and is to God. He says in Genesis 9 verses 5 and 6, God said to Noah, and for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. What's the grounds? Do you hear the grounds there for, for this life for life language that God has? This, this, this serious weightiness, the taking of life. All people, all humankind are image bearers of God. They reflect God. There are no classes of humans. Each person is an immortal. Each person reflects God. Male, female, black, white, rich, poor, young, old, mentally acute, mentally disabled, Christian, or non. All of us are image bearers of God. Do you take this truth seriously? That all of life is sacred and weighty. As I reflected on the staggering numbers of unsolved murders, not just to, not to mention just the unsolved murders, but as I was looking at the statistics, just the number of murders. And that doesn't even account for assaults Right? Of attempted murders and, and the like. 
As I, as, I, as I reflected on those staggering numbers in our country, and when I include the millions of lives of unborn children whose murders were sanctioned, that word right there, sanctioned, what does it mean? What's the root? Counted as holy by the culture. As I reflected on this, That we can't help, as I sit here, even as Christians, as we kind of wrestle with this in our hearts, we can't help but think that as a culture, we take life and human life very lightly. Sure, we we take some lives as serious. We take our lives as serious. We take our loved ones' lives as serious. We might take some close compadres as serious, but I don't know. I don't know. Don't miss this. The Lord does not consider the taking of human life lightly. The innocent blood cries out for justice. And the Lord will not withhold justice. And this brings us to our second question. Who is guilty of murder? Who are the perpetrators of this commandment? Do not murder. The law here is dealing with particularly an unsolved murder and presumably one that is unsolvable. Um, There is a murderer, a murderer who is guilty of the crime and who deserves to die, life for life. Yet as I've already noted, the people are called to deal with it, at least ceremonially. They're to deal with the blood guilt of it. And I suggested to you that it was because of their sense of corporate guilt that extended to the place uh, where the crime was committed. There, there's a sense in which the, that, that land and the, the town surrounding it have a, have a responsibility with, to deal with the guilt. Now, and I've already expressed to you that it, the guilt is not the same. The elders didn't commit the murder and their lives are not at stake, nor did the community. And so the blood guilt in a very real sense, doesn't belong to them. I've already stated that. Nevertheless, the evil had to be dealt with. It had to be purged. There's a corporate effect, if you will, to the sin. And I've already mentioned this as well, but the the prophets often indicted the whole nation on the account of the sin of some. So what does that mean for us? What, what significance does this concept have for us as a church, firstly? Um, I don't think we have the luxury of saying in the church, well, I wasn't involved in that, in that. That has no dealing with me. Those people are doing those things over there in the life of the body. I don't, it doesn't affect me at all. Friends, we're a body. We're a body. And sin, by any one individual or any group of individuals has an impact on the whole. It just does. This principle is taken up in the New Testament with regard to the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. On the other hand, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. We're in this together. We have a union, a unity that requires that we deal with stuff 
the, the sin in our own lives and in our, our own hearts. We can never live the life that says, I'm going to live my life, you live how you want to live, and I'll live how I want to live, and I won't confront you with anything, and if you don't confront me with anything, we'll go on living our happy lives of just kind of individuals and without really going there. Um, we can't do that. We're called to live life with one another, calling one another to, to account. When we make our membership vows, we say these words, I promise to study or strive after the peace and the purity of the church. What does that mean? That means, it means we speak truth to one another. We speak it in love, but we speak truth. We don't, we don't let sin run rampant in the life of the body. What about, that's, it's, it's one thing to think corporately as a body in the church, but I think there's another way in which we also have to think in terms of the culture. It's, it's not identical, it's not to the same degree, but I do think we have a right and a responsibility as citizens of a nation to be concerned to be active in fighting against evil. To upholding life. Whatever form that takes. But I, but I would even go one step farther. I, I don't even think it's necessarily uh, just within the confines of the U.S. But I think as a human race, we ought to be deeply concerned and grieved over the state of humanity that takes life so lightly. We had the awful news this week of a terrible tragedy in New Zealand. Oh, that has nothing to do with us. We live in the U.S. Why do I care about what goes on in New Zealand? Because life matters. And I would even go farther. It ought to break our heart and cry out to God because of the ravaging effects of sin in this world. Call for justice and righteousness, for salvation. I was thinking about it corporately, but I want to I now kind of move and to think about more carefully on the issue of blood guilt or murder in the heart of all of us in the individual, who is guilty of this sin. To do this, there are two places in the New Testament that are highly instructive. First, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, in chapter 5 and 6, and then uh, in John's letter, his first epistle. First, Jesus teaches on the commandment, do not murder, in chapter 5 of Matthew. And he says these words, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's a pretty radical statement. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, a curse in that world, will be liable to the hell of fire. What does that mean? Well, it means that every person you ever encounter is a reflection of God himself and must be treated as such. You are encountering immortal beings. 
And we have no right to mistreat, look down on, malign, cheat, disregard, lie to, abuse, use, make fun of, or hate, or any other of a myriad of evil we're prone to do to our fellow image bearers, no matter who they are, and no matter what they've done to you. Jesus says that murder begins in the heart, and our evil thoughts, words, and actions towards others make us liable to the hell of fire. Taking of life begins not in some action, but in the depths of our heart. It begins with how we care for or disregard the lives of others around us. And if you think that someone's own evil towards you nullifies what you do to them, hear what Jesus says a little further down in the same sermon on the mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. To give, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. (laughs) The call goes well beyond simply not hating one another. It extends all the way to loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. In his first epistle, John picks up this teaching and expounds it by looking at the first murder ever by Cain uh, of his brother Abel. John says this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. A few verses down, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet chooses, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Friends, God takes our lives seriously. He considers them weighty and he calls us to do the same with one another. But how often, how often do we let our anger turn into bitterness and revenge? How often do we seek to give back to someone, right? Recompense, maybe in a word or an action or maybe in an inaction. And how often do we justify ourselves saying, well, they deserved it, right? How often do we say that in our mind as we, as we yell at people, as we cry out, As we do little things to annoy and to hurt one another. How many times do we pick on someone and belittle someone because they're different or other? How many times has jealousy and covetousness caused us to desire the downfall of another? How many times has a disagreement turned into an intractable feud? You've stopped talking to somebody. Have you ever done that? I am just going to dehumanize you completely. I will just stop talking. How many times have we held offense against someone, harboring our anger, not forgiving? 
How often have we treated those serving us with contempt or disdain? Or how many times have we treated those in authority over us with malice? Whenever we do this, we are breaking the commandment, do not murder. Notice in our text how the officials had to wash their hands and declare themselves innocent of the blood guilt. They probably were. They would hopefully be innocent. They wouldn't be lying there perjuring themselves, but they would be innocent of that particular man's death. But in a much bigger sense, there is not one person who does not have the guilt of this, of this particular sin on their hands. We're all like Lady Macbeth. What did she say? Out damn spot, right? She tried to wash her hands. The smell is still there, do you remember? I I think I had to memorize part of that soliloquy at some point. It's a rough thing to to realize that, that we're breakers of this commandment. Because on some level, this commandment of all the commandments seems sort of for the extreme. For the person out there who is wicked and evil and does wicked things like this man in New Zealand. But it's, it's not something we deal with. Not in our hearts. We're not murderers. But there is atonement. And this brings us to our final question and conclusion. There is a cleansing. How can it be atoned for? Through the blood of the innocent one. The hope in our text can be found in the prayer of the priest. It says here, accept atonement, O Lord. This is verse 8. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in their midst in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. It's an interesting thing. In in Numbers, the end of Numbers, uh, there's a section on murder as well. Uh, It's a little more detailed, actually, in some ways than this section. But it says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of, of, of witnesses, But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge. We talked about that before. That he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Seems pretty hopeless, right? For that murderer, there's no hope. And if we extend that out to the fact that murder comes from within, from the heart, when it is expressed in hate, when it is expressed in lack of love, there's that question... How can it be atoned for? Doesn't scripture say it can't be atoned for? Well, there is one. There is one who can atone 
for her blood guilt. There was a cow that was unblemished, that had never pulled a yoke or had done any work, that was there and whose neck was broken. And it was a stand-in for the perpetrator. It was this cow for this perpetrator. But the reality is that perpetrator was still guilty and that cow didn't really have any effect. But it was a picture. It's a picture. It was a glorious picture. It was a picture of, of what was necessary, that there would be one who could possibly deal with this situation of this unsolved murder. There's a picture that says, can there be atonement? And the prayer is, Lord, accept atonement for the people of Israel. You see, the guilty party needed to stand in judgment, but God looked on that animal and said, there is one who is coming, who is without blemish, who is perfect. You remember Pontius Pilate? He thought this was an innocent man, but he was complicit in the murder of Jesus, along with all the other people. So, so really the guilty party is all the people crying out, crucify Jesus, and all those who had put him to death, and Pontius Pilate, who sits there with his hands being washed and saying, I want nothing, I'm innocent in this. This is the irony, right? Here was Jesus laying down his life as the most innocent man that ever lived. God himself come to earth to say, I will cleanse you, but you are not clean apart from me. No atonement could be made except for the one from heaven. Except for the God who is perfect in all his ways, who took upon himself our blood guilt. Who stood in judgment in front of guilty hands and guilty hearts. Who willingly laid down his life that we might have life. This is atonement. This is something to rejoice in. This is the glories of the gospel. Here it is. You who are guilty of blood guilt. Me. Who refuses to forgive. Who holds and harbors anger and bitterness. Who's guilty of breaking this commandment. Can be cleansed. Can be atoned for. Through the blood of Jesus. The once for all sacrifice. What a hope. <laughs> there is no other hope besides that. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb who is slain for you. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we thank you uh, for your grace. We recognized, uh, Lord, that we are guilty of sin. We recognize that we uh, have broken this commandment, that we mistreat others, that we treat people unequally, unequally, Lord, and we, and we treat them uh, in ways that don't reflect their image-bearing. 
Lord, forgive us of our blood guilt. Atone for our sins. And we thank you that you have, that you have done that on the cross and that our hope is in you, that you can cleanse our hands and our hearts, that we can walk in newness of life and say, we have been redeemed. We have been forgiven. We have been atoned for. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.